a minority of us here who would remember it, but uh, the winter of 1979-80 was a particularly hard one. Uh, I was still at home in my late teens and helping on the farm and we ran out of the dried lamb milk uh, substitute that uh, we used to feed orphan lambs. Unfortunately, we were snowed in. A uh, most incredible blizzard had, uh, had come and uh, uh, in Devon there are enormously high hedges and deep roads. The road to our farm ran north-south and since the weather always comes from the west, it had filled up to a depth of about 10 feet with snow and there was no way any vehicle could get out. So my father sent me to uh, make my way into town as best I could to get some more dried lamb milk. I set off very early in the morning. Um, it was easy for chunks of it because the uh, snow had drifted and over the centre of the fields, the snow was no more than that deep. But when you got near the hedges, it became uh, feet deep and it could take me at least half an hour, I remember on one occasion, just traversing one hedge to uh, get into the next field. I was exhausted and uh, uh, I, it was lunchtime before I got even into the town about four miles away. I had to turn round immediately and come home. Night was falling, I remember, as uh, I was getting closer to home. But uh, when I was completely exhausted and it looked like I was going to lose the uh, light on one of the areas with steep snow, uh, deep snow, I suddenly slipped and I fell down a bank underneath some brambles and landed at the bottom of this bank with um, a canopy of brambles and then feet of snow above me. And I thought... If I don't get out of here, no one's ever going to find me. I slowly crawled up the bank and uh, got home just before it got completely dark. Sometimes life is a bit like that journey. In fact, the Bible often describes our, our life as Christians, as, as, a, as, a, as a walk, uh, even a pilgrimage. It is a walk following Jesus to a destination which is the new heaven and the new earth, the presence of God. In the Old Testament, um, the Israelites mirrored that physically. Three times a year they were told to go on pilgrimage. They had to leave the country districts and the outlying areas where they lived and walk as a people to Jerusalem where the temple was, where God was and there go and worship God. And as James has already said, these psalm songs of ascents, as they are often uh, uh, called, Psalms 120 to 134, 
seem to have been collected together for just those pilgrimages. They um, um, have many um, marks associated with a pilgrim traveller walking through the valleys of Israel, heading towards Jerusalem, heading towards the temple, heading towards God. And the Psalms help us reflect, uh, or help the pilgrims reflect on various aspects of their life of faith as they prepared for that, those great, that great um, uh, celebration of worship that they were uh, 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 due to um, begin. And therefore for Christians who don't any longer make pilgrimages to uh, Jerusalem, at least evangelical Christians by and large don't, and certainly who don't uh, expect to meet God only in one place, nevertheless as Christians we can use these psalms to take stock of our faith as we walk as pilgrim people through our lives to that final great meeting with God. So that is what we're going to do for uh, a number of weeks as we study these songs of ascents on Sunday mornings. Unfortunately, we're not going to look, be able to look at all of them. We're just going to pick a few of the jewels and leave some other wonderful psalms um, virtually uncommented on. Um, I want to encourage you, though, over this summer period to use these songs of ascent as an opportunity to do a little bit of spiritual self-evaluating. The equivalent, um, the nearest equivalent we have of... uh, those pilgrim moments in the year that Israel had is, to be honest, our holidays, which are rightly set aside for a bit of relaxation and often a little bit of reflection on where am I at? Where is my life at? In order to encourage you to do that, we're going to give you three resources to look at these psalms, at least three, maybe more. Um, one is these sermons, which I hope you will uh, listen to and uh, if you can't be here, we'll download from the website. It's very easy to do, um, to uh, use that as an aid to get you into these songs of ascent. The second, second thing is, I'm hoping that uh, a proportion of them at least will be studied in home groups. Uh, if, you're not, if you don't belong to a home group, to a small group that meets in the week, usually they follow um, the, the sermons Um, do join one because it really does deepen and enrich your experience of uh, studying the Bible together. But we're going to try, I'm going to try, a third resource for you, which I've been working on but I haven't um, been able to get ready for today, but it will be ready soon. Um, I'm producing a little booklet for you just with a brief reflection, explanation and meditation on each one of these 15 psalms. It's designed to be a quick read, a really quick read, um, and also to give you some questions to reflect upon personally. I hope that with these different resources, and I might recommend the odd book for you to read for those who like to read 
book-length studies, I hope that these psalms will provide a valuable opportunity over this summer to review where we're at spiritually. Having said that, let me get into um, uh, these psalms then reasonably quickly. Actually, they are five, the 15 psalms are five little sets of three. And uh, so the first three, 120, 121 and 122, fit together and they follow a common theme. The theme is setting out. What do you need to actually even embark on this journey of faith? We're not going to look at Psalm 122, you'll have to look at it in the booklet, but uh, let me just uh, um, uh, not jump immediately over Psalm 120. Psalm 120 makes it plain that, that we need actually to fall out of love with this world. No one embarks on a journey to a new place. No one emigrates unless they've become dissatisfied with the place they're in. And so Psalm 120 expresses that dissatisfaction that that, that is necessary if we are to be pilgrims heading towards God. Dissatisfaction, verse 2, with the lies of this world. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips, from deceitful tongues. Dissatisfaction with the violence of this world. Verse 6, too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You know, I mean, just look at what's in the, in the news at the moment um, and you, you'll realise we're, we're absolutely familiar with the lies and violence of this world. What are we thinking about? MPs' expenses and a review of why we went to the Iraq war. What we don't see is how deeply embedded lies and violence are in this fallen world. We become enraged about other people and think that just one less war and... uh, as a tighter grip on MPs' expenses, there will be no lies and violence. That's not true. And Christians need to have open eyes to the fallenness of this world. This world is full of good things because it was created by God. We're not to fall out of love with those good things, but we are to fall out of love with the fallenness of this world. Otherwise we'll fix our hearts on the fallen things of this world and never fix our hearts on eternity. If you want to be a pilgrim, do not love the world. But we're going to focus on Psalm 121. The second setting out lesson on this pilgrimage. The message of Psalm 121 is do not be afraid. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Verse 1. Where does my help come from? 
Actually, for centuries, exegetes have argued over why he looks to the hills. Does he look to the hills because he's frightened of what might come out of the hills? Robbers lived in the hills. Does he look to the hills because they might be a source of, 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 of security and safety? Israel sometimes fled to the hills away from the plains when enemies attacked them. Does he look to the hills because on the hills were high places where pagan gods were worshipped and people, there might have been a temptation to turn aside from the long pilgrimage to Jerusalem and go for some simple, short-term, easy worship on any local hill, as the prophets uh, uh, put it. Uh, frankly, actually, we don't know exactly why he looked to the hills. But the rest of the psalm makes it plain that there was anxiety in his heart. Whatever, whatever he was tempted to see in those hills, what was going on inside him was anxiety. Where does my help come from? He says. See, I, I think we don't realise actually how profoundly and broadly we are driven as human beings by fear. The teenager conforms to the rest of the group for fear of being left out, of being identified as different. Or the teenager... Um, Teenagers live, I think, with um, a real fear of not being attractive to the opposite sex. Um, I've been watching adverts this week, thinking about that. The lynx effect. It's very funny, isn't it? But it's pandering to those underlying fears of, I won't be attractive. Just a spray of lynx and I'll be transformed. Single people fear loneliness, don't we? Some fear loneliness and fear the being tied down. Other adults fear job insecurity. We fear failure. We fear being exposed for the person that we sense we are inside. As we get older, we fear infirmity. We fear death. I've always had a real sense of fear of my sinfulness and how that could completely mess up my life. We have to realise life is essentially uncontrollable. That is a vital and fundamental lesson at least by us, life is uncontrollable. When, in those moments when we realise that, we, we have, tend to have two reflex uh, uh, reactions. One is panic. And the other is to try and get it under control. And that combination of panic and, and frantically trying to get our life under control actually drives us, shapes us, shapes the whole course of our life very often. 
There is a third reaction that Christians can have which also shapes our life and is profoundly liberating. We can entrust ourselves to God, the God who is in control. That's what I want to call you to do and that is what I want us to see the psalmist calling us to do this morning. Where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord. Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He can give us his help because he is the creator, the, the maker of heaven and earth. There is not an atom in the universe that he did not create, that he does not control. And um, after he made the earth, he didn't fall asleep. He is ongoingly alert. The uh, NIV uses this phrase, he watches over, again and again and again. In fact, the word that it's translating occurs six times in this psalm and the old translation uh, that, was, uh, that was used was, was he keeps because it's not just passively watching, it is watching over in the sense of caring, like a shepherd caring for the, the, the flock of sheep, like a, like a guard guarding a house or a building. And that comes up again and again and again in this psalm. Verse 3, second half. He who watches over you will not slumber. Verse 4. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Verse 5. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. Verse 7. The Lord will keep. That's watch it, watch over. The Lord will watch over you and keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. Same word again. And then verse 8. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. God is not asleep. God is not unable to protect you. He will protect you. He will protect you in all places. Verse 8 your comings and goings, and at all times, both now and forevermore. He never goes to sleep. He never loses his sovereign power. He never falters from his eternal purpose in your life. He is never caught by surprise, by our foolishness or the devil's wiles. He is the maker of heaven and earth who does not sleep. Where does our help come from? If you're a Christian here this morning, you've already begun to learn that lesson, but learn it deep in your heart. Our help comes from the Lord. What protection then? does this God offer? Well, uh, there are several statements of the protection that he offers in this psalm and let me uh, take you through it and uh, uh, clarify it for you. In verse 3, 
we are protected from falling away from our faith. I think that is what uh, uh, that phrase, he will not let your foot slip, is meant to imply. In various places in the Old Testament, the idiom of a foot slipping off the path is used. And it is used of faltering faith. You know, those of us who have some, some sensitivity and understanding of our heart, we find, don't we, again and again and again, this sense of stumbling, faltering in our, uh, uh, our walk with God. Do we really trust him? Some of, for some of us, that is more of an acute reality. Some friends of ours um, have a daughter who, um, since earliest days, has always been distinctly clumsy. And uh, they went to accident and emergency so many times with her that they were worried, or people were warning them, that they might get social workers knocking on their door. It was... um, uh, uh, so frequent that she hurt herself. And one day they um, had the cover to the sewer in the garden open. Some men were working on it. And so they put this fence around with about two metres of uh, gap between the fence and the sewer. Their daughter went out into the garden and somehow managed to stumble at the fence, over the fence, and then keep running (laughs) until she fell headfirst down the sewer hole. After the event, they laughed. Some people are like that. They seem bent on stumbling. This promise is deeply precious. He will not. He will not. He will not let your foot slip. He will protect us as well from natural disasters. That seems to be the, uh, um, the point of the sun, verse 6 that will not harm you by day. If you were a pilgrim in ancient Palestine, um, the sun was a danger to you. It would burn you, you could uh, get caught out in it and dehydrated very quickly. It will not harm you. Natural disasters will not harm you, says the, the psalmist. Maybe a little speculative to add in the second half of verse 6 um, uh, the suggestion that we will be saved from, from, from madness. Um, there's a big question as to how the moon might harm us by night in the second half of verse 6. Long traditions suggest that uh, the moon has an adverse effect on people's mental health and that was certainly current in Israel at the time. There may, have been, so there may be some sense that God will keep you in your right mind here. 
whether or not that's, uh, uh, that's true. The summary statement is all-encompassing in verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. Extraordinary statements. No ifs, no buts, the strongest possible set, set of statements for, uh, of protection. And to be honest, when we see that, a lot of us, we have a negative reaction against it. Not because we don't want it to be true, but our own experience doesn't fit with it. Preacher, friend of mine once confessed to me how he went to a church as a visiting preacher and he preached on this psalm relatively um, boldly without um, uh, much expansion and explanation and they were furious with him because a key member of the church had just been killed in a car crash. What does the Lord will keep you from all harm mean in that circumstance. And we all know perhaps of someone who did fall away. Their foot really? Will he really not let your foot slip? Natural disasters do come. People are dogged by mental illness. A false solution to that conundrum is to say, well, the psalm is not really speaking as strongly and as unequivocally as it seems to be. Yeah, perhaps God is broadly in control, but he's not in control of this or that. It's a sort of broad brushstroke. But when you get down to the details, God can't control X or Y or Z. Many people opt for that solution but I am persuaded the Bible will not let us do so seems to me that the true solution is to affirm with this psalmist God really really is in control of all things but not in a sense not in a way that immediately eliminates all evil. For now, until Christ comes again, until God finally completes the story, for now there is evil in this world, there is real evil in this world, and God exercises his control over it, not by eliminating it, but by curbing its power. We will still have to endure real evil at times. But the extraordinary thing that the Bible says consistently from beginning to end, the extraordinary thing that the Bible says is even that evil, evil though it is, does not have an absolute power 
to thwart God's good plans for us. Romans 8.28 is the famous statement of that, isn't it? In all things God works for the good of those who love him. In all things. And that is not an isolated verse, that is a theme that comes through scripture again and again and again. So how are we to deal with, how are we to understand then the real experience we have of things going wrong, of us stumbling in our faith and these massively strong assertions that there are in Scripture. Let let me give you some pointers to help you to have a deeper understanding of what is going on in your life when things go wrong. And then I hope it will bring us back to Psalm 121. The most important thing that you and I need to understand is that God's agenda for our life is not our agenda for our life. God's agenda is deeper and richer and wiser than ours. And this is his agenda. He is absolutely determined that you should complete your pilgrimage. He's absolutely determined that you should complete your pilgrimage. He puts it actually just in the verse after Romans 8, 28 in this way. He is determined that you would be conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's God's agenda for your life. I know it would be nice to think that God's agenda will be to make you rich and to give you um, some short-term happinesses and some comfort and even the, the length of life that you want and no illnesses and all of those sorts of things, but he doesn't promise those. He promises, though, that he will work to conform you to the likeness of Christ. That is his big project in your life. That is your main good. And I've lived long enough now to see that God does do that. Not in every case, not in every situation that I've seen. There are many that remain confusing and will be confusing, I'm sure, to the last um, uh, day when I finally see things um, clearly in the presence of Christ. But I've seen enough of God doing that good work of conforming people to the likeness of Christ to see that he does that. For instance, I have an old friend who was a Christian leader um, And um, I knew him well. I knew he was a deeply flawed one. I knew that he had um, deep, unresolved issues of pride, particularly in his heart. And I prayed for him and I cried out to God for him many, many, many times. Finally, God took his position of Christian leadership away. 
and I'm still in touch with him. And a decade or so on, I start to see signs of humility, signs of lowliness before God. Just the beginnings. See, God sometimes does have to deal with us pretty roughly to conform us to the likeness of Christ. The Apostle Paul says that we should judge ourselves quickly. Because if God has to do the work, because we won't, sometimes he will have to use a pretty strong hand. But it is a good work. Or I can think of another uh, old friend, a lady whose um, husband left her. It was terrible, it was catastrophic, it was deeply painful again. Um, I treasure the the day I was talking to her a few years after that had happened. And she was telling me all that God had done in her life. And it was obvious, she'd just become far, far more mature, stable believer through that deeply difficult experience. And she, she capped it by saying, you know, on a good day, I can be glad that he left me. Now, I don't promise you, you will be able to see or work out precisely what God is doing in your life through the difficulty that you endure. There is no promise that we will understand everything this side of eternity. But there is a promise that there is a purpose, a good purpose of God in your life if you're a believer. God's agenda is not the same as ours. In the end, we have to trust that his wisdom is better than ours. Let me give you two um, biblical truths to remember on this, to get it really clearly in your mind and to help you to find some liberty through these difficult circumstances. One is this. This, 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 is, this is something that, a, that I've only realised with any clarity relatively recently. But I'm absolutely convinced it's true in Scripture and I'm relieved to discover that ancient theologians believed it too. The trouble that comes in your life, if you're a believer, the trouble that comes in your life is never, never a penalty for your sin. It is never the penalty for your sin. Okay? Jesus died on the cross for all of your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins if you are a believer 
and he does not make you pay twice a second time. It is always, if you are a believer, it is always the discipline to help you to grow. And it may be difficult, it may be tough. No discipline is easy at the time, says Hebrews 12. But you're not paying for your sins. It's Father's Day today. This is the loving hand of a father who knows how to shape you and grow you. And you may think, rubbish, it's destroying me. But he's wiser than you. He knows what he's doing. That's what scripture says. You may well be aware of your sin and perhaps some adverse consequence that seems to be reasonably closely associated with its sin, with that sin. But let me say, the connection is not that God is making you pay. The connection is that God is determined to make you good. And the second thing, just to amplify and deepen this um, agenda of God that God has, our understanding of this agenda, that God's agenda is to conform you to the likeness of Christ. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Do turn with me. It's on page... 1152 to really hammer home that there is nothing, nothing more important to God than getting you to eternal glory. The context from verse 17 onwards is uh, uh, abuses in um, the Corinthian church of communion and um, Paul makes it plain that some people had even died in that church, in verse 30, uh, as a result of the sin that they were pursuing in not looking after each other. That is why, he says, many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But let me take you to verse 32 to amplify and illustrate this point that we're trying to get across. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Well, the discipline he's talking about includes actually some who died prematurely. But this was not um, for those sinning believers actually an act of condemnation on God's part it was so that they would not be condemned that's what it seems to be saying in other words rather than have them settle deeper and deeper into sin until, that, until such time as they are only worthy of condemnation God would rather take them early When we are judged, we are judged in order not to be condemned. 
if we are believers, says the New Testament. Now let me say, as James was saying, that is still scary, isn't it? It's not by accident that the the, the Bible from beginning to end encourages us to fear the Lord. It is an awesome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But if if God has put his hand on you, if God has made you alive in Christ, if God has chosen you, if God has... Has, has set his spirit on you, then his project now is not to condemn you and not to punish you, but to conform you to the likeness of Christ, to take you to himself, so that on the last day you will be holy and blameless without any blemish. That is what he is doing in your life. And now back to Psalm 121. The Lord, verse 7, will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. If you're not a Christian here this morning, that promise is not for you. Those truths are not for you. you've not asked for God's forgiveness, if you've not appropriated the saving work of Christ on the cross for you, then there is still a punishment waiting. But if you are a Christian this morning, you are kept by the living God. All your comings and goings, both now and forevermore, His only project in your life is to conform you to the likeness of Christ. So how should we respond? Let me suggest two dimensions of a Christian response. One is joy and contentment. Life, to be honest, often feels like that journey I undertook in the winter of 1979-80. And in the, the youthfulness of morning, we can see all the obstacles, we set out and we get through them and uh, it's a bit scary, but... Uh, That is our struggle at that stage. And then there is a coming home session section which some time kicks in. And we're starting to get tired and things are starting to go wrong. But they're not. As you set out, you have a God who will keep you. As you're coming home, you have a God who will keep you. You have the most glorious privilege in all of creation. Enjoy it. Find contentment in it. 
He will not let your foot slip. He will not actually take you off the path, punish you. He is shaping you for himself. And the other dimension of a response is surely that Christians can be risk takers. Because there's no risk. Why do we spend so much of our life trying to surround ourselves with things that will make us feel secure? Spraying on the lynx deodorant, accumulating as much uh, money as we possibly can. Buying into illusions. I noticed in Boots this week that anti-wrinkle cream is not just anti-wrinkle cream now, it is anti-ageing cream. Yeah, you can keep yourself eternally youthful with those creams. Why do we waste our time with those sorts of things when actually we can live lives in one sense which are entirely vulnerable because we are invulnerable. Get out there and serve the Lord. Do not waste your energy on trying to to keep yourself safe when you are the safest people in all creation. Take risks for God. The uh, Puritan preacher, Richard Sibbs, said uh, this, whatever is good for God's children, they shall have it. For all is theirs to further them to heaven. If crosses be good, they shall have them. If disgrace be good, they shall have it. All is ours to serve our main good.